0: What really went on up there, James? Your Majesty's Secret Service has stole my job. But there isn't anything you can do about your job at the moment, is there? Mm-hmm. No. Why are you thinking about it now? I'm not. Tracy, and he's shouldn't be concerned with anything but himself
1: I understand we'll just have to go on the way we are I'll have to find something else to do
0: Trek FM's dedicated general geek show. I'm so excited to be coming to you live from Piz Gloria, Switzerland. I'm just kidding, of course. Uh, we wish we were coming from that location, don't we, John?
1: Yeah. You know, Piz Gloria is beautiful this time of year. Ah,
0: yeah. the skiing and the
1: mm-hmm. snow
0: bunnies. <laughs> all,
1: all the chicken you can eat if you have an allergy. That's right. There yeah. you go.
0: Uh, bananas too yeah uh, you know yep. basically anything you're allergic to they'll make sure you're not by the time you leave it's fantastic wonderful place to stay uh, oh and they have uh, a really nice setup with uh with ice hockey kind of thing mm. going on mm-hmm. too you know so whew, wow uh <laughs> beautiful place but well, I- we're just kidding. We're we're gonna be talking about another Bond movie tonight and hopefully you know what we're referencing on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Before we dive in, just quick reminder, you can find all of the shows. For Trek FM on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek.FM, we're a feature provider then. And of course, you can find us pretty much any place you can get your podcasts these days. And so make sure you check that out. And while you're there in iTunes, give us a star rating review. Definitely helps out the show. Huge thanks to so many people recently who've been going and doing that. Uh, really, uh, from the bottom of my heart, it's the best Christmas gift ever uh, for a podcaster getting star ratings and reviews. So thank you so much. You can find us on Twitter, Trek FM. Facebook, facebook.com slash trek.fm. We've got the listeners-only discussion group there on Facebook. You can find, it's called the Babel Conference. Type Babel into the search field on Facebook, or if you're at the website, trek.fm, you can hit discussion on any of the menu bars there. That'll bring you straight over. Take old-school email. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show. Choose the 602 Club. That comes straight to us. And, of course, last but not least, love getting voicemails at speakpipe.com slash Trek FM. there's so many places <laughs> you can find us <laughs> but this is this is i mean and we're going to dive right into it john we're not going to beat around the bush with this one yeah this is the one that everybody knows oh yeah that's that one where that guy only did one bond right uh you know like that's that's what this one's kind of known for unless i think you know unless you're probably a real bond file And then this one might be something more to you. Or if you're Christopher Nolan or, of course, uh, you're Steven Soderbergh, which Uh, for him, he says, there's no question for me that cinematically, On Her Majesty's Secret Service is the best Bond film and the only one watching repeatedly for reasons other than pure entertainment. Shot to shot, this movie is beautiful in a way that no other Bond films are. So... It, it's all over the map uh, you also get people online or, or anywhere else to be like "Ah, that, that movie sucked I hated that bond so <laughs> I you know I, I think that's the perfect place to start with this idea that a new bond and interestingly enough even before we get to him this is a book that Fleming actually wrote during the the making of the early bond films and in some ways might be considered a gentle dig at this, you know, cinematic Bond gadgets. This is a very different type of Bond story than, than what... It, this feels much more, I would say, like the first two, and they've been trying to make this one for a long time. <laughs> uh, they were going to do this instead of Gold, uh, after Goldfinger. Uh, they were going to do this after Thunderball, Neither of those times worked out for various reasons, and we finally get to it
1: here. I think this movie falls into a really weird spot. So it's funny that with a series of movies that uh, is approaching its 25th film, that we would be talking about franchise fatigue after five movies. You know, but we we talked about it before. We talked about how maybe in Thunderball, Connery didn't seem like he was quite into it. And maybe with The Only Live Twice, they were just sort of going all out, throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. And now you're back at this place of having to kind of reinvent yourself with, uh, with with the Bond movie. What does Bond mean? How do we make him relevant? How do we not just make him a cartoon? And how do we reinvent the character so that, well, we can sort of remind everybody that this is the same guy, but we can make sure that any of the problems with the Connery Bond aren't there anymore. So it really falls into a weird spot. And, you know, I talked before about how once you've done Dr. No, you can't go back to the well. Once you've done Dr. No and you've established yourself as a hit, then everything that follows that is self-aware. Everything is either trying to top the last movie or or at least be the same but different to the audience. So it's a really tough trap that the filmmakers are in. And this movie kicks off and in such a sort of a weird and interesting way you know you, you've you laid the groundwork here to establish when it arrives and that it was written after the movies had already started coming out so even as an author Ian Fleming is aware of the success of the movies which I think can mm, help yeah. <laughs> but but inform how this book is written and then it can't help but inform how the filmmakers make this movie you turn it into a movie You know, it's so fascinating to me that they go so far out of their way to hit the audience over the head with the idea that this is the same guy. We're going to recap all the other missions. Yep. You know, do some montages.
0: Hey, even the opening credit sequence has... Even the opening
1: credits, yep.
0: ...a myriad of pictures and and, uh, video clips, basically, playing in the background with all the rest of the psychedelic material going on. I uh, see all these things, it's James Bond, same guy. Right, right, right after you've
1: given the biggest wink and a nod right to the audience yep. that you can to have George Lazenby say, this never happened to the other fella. Which could mean, could mean anything, but I
0: think we know what it means. Well, and, and it's so funny because they filmed that scene uh, almost last because they are in Portugal to film the wedding. And... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Peter Hunt turns to him and he says, "Okay, you can finally say that line that you've been saying the entire production, which this never happened to the other fellow. (laughs) And he even and Peter Hunt thought it was such a great way to just just break that fourth wall, Mm -hmm. just break the ice. We we get it. We know this is a different guy. Just come with us on the ride, which it's probably the first time I feel like the fourth wall in a major franchise is really broken in this sense. Mm-hmm. Like, to say, we get it, it's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, I think, probably the best move that they could make to to not, not have some fun with it, not play with it a little bit. Because Bond's always been a little bit playful, and I think they make, uh, to me, I don't, they make the right decision. Do you think that that kind of works? I don't think you really have
1: any other choice. I mean, th- this just by definition of not having Sean Connery, but by having this massive franchise with huge anticipation, huge uh, audience anticipation, you have to acknowledge it. And, And like I said, it's kind of a weird choice that you beat the audience over the head to say, this is the same guy, nothing has changed, these are the same missions that you know and love, aha, but this is a different actor. We're actually telling you Telling you, the audience, you are an audience member watching a movie and we are Mm -hmm. filmmakers who are aware of what we are doing to you (laughs) by making these changes, but by also indicating that we're going to try as hard as we can to keep things in the same world and the same universe as we can. So, yeah, I, I can't really think of another way to have done it. And fortunately, they get over this hump. So that by the time you have other actors come along as Bond, the audience is just ready to accept another
0: actor as Bond. Yes, yes. Well, and what's so interesting to me behind the scenes on this one, because there's so much going on. I honestly did not know this until I was doing some research, as we always try to do for these, John. And everybody, I think, is aware that Pierce Brosnan was almost Bond before he was Bond Mm -hmm. and that Remington Steele got in the way. Very interesting here that they planned, Saltzman had planned to adapt Man with the Golden Gun. Go to Cambodia, use Roger Moore as the next James Bond, but then there's political instability there, and Roger Moore signs up with a series, The Saint. And so TV gets in in the way again of a Bond, or for the first time, uh, somebody that will later become a Bond, from playing the role so so interesting because i feel like obviously if moore had got the role ben and man with a golden gun sean would never have come back yeah yeah i think because roger moore would have been cool with staying on so i mean just so fascinating what almost happened but then it, it it just doesn't work and that's what leads them back to on Her Majesty's Secret Service.
1: Well, and let's also keep in mind, Timothy Dalton was approached to play Bond for this as well. He was 22 years old at the time. Wow, can you imagine? 22, oh. and he, he had the wherewithal to turn it down and say, no, 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 I'm entirely too young for this. George Lazenby was 29. And uh, by the time Roger Moore took over the role when you actually, you know, skip Diamonds Are Forever and you end up at The Man with the Golden Gun, I believe he was 40 at the time. So there's a big, big spread between the 29-year-old Lazenby here and then the 40-year-old Roger Moore that we get in a few years. And I think there's something very particular about having George Lazenby as young as he is and as unknown as he is mm-hmm. playing this particular Bond in this particular movie. You know, I think there's something very specific that has to work here for that.
0: Yeah, no that's that's a really good point. I think that this script almost lent itself in this film lend itself to introducing you to a new Bond, quote unquote. Yep. You know, it, it's a it's a good script for that because I think and we talked a little bit about this the last time, you know, uh, whether Sean could have pulled this off and I just don't think that he could have and, and part of that is watching what Lazenby does bring to the role which is a sense of sometimes uncertainty uh with a sense of vulnerability that you never saw in Sean I don't think and a, a sense of almost I I don't want to say frightened mm. but there there is something behind the eyes you know that he doesn't always have it all figured out and I think that's the thing that he really brings to the role to me one of the things he does best is that he comes across very human. And that's, uh, to me, honestly, I don't really think that happens until Craig again. Mm-hmm. None of the other bonds to me, and I, I love Brosnan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do, uh, Roger Moore's not my favorite. I, I like some of the things that Dalton brings to the role too. But there is a humanity to George Lazenby. That I really respond to. And, and on top of that, he actually resembles James Bond in the book. Yep. Uh, James Bond is tall. Uh, James Bond is thin. And he has a thin face. And he long nose. He's also not known for being handsome in the, the I guess, the, the general sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Like uh, You know, he has a dangerousness about him. And, and Lazenby, I think, has all those things, too. Uh, so I think all of those things do play along with this, and yeah, it's it's crazy to think that this guy never acted ever before this, and they throw him into this role. And the well, the main reason he gets it is because when they're doing their stunt testing, he punches the guy in the face for real and knocks right. him out. Right. Yeah. That's that's why they give him the role. They're like, "Yep, yep, that's yep. that's James Bond." Yeah, because he
1: had never stunt fought before. You know, but I I, I kind of love the idea, something that you could never do today. I love the idea that you oh, know, right <laughs> he goes to Connery's barber and he buys James Bond's watch and he picks up one of Connery's suits that Connery had been fitted for, but then didn't pick up. So it just by happenstance he was able to get. It. I forgot what the the time frame on it was, but he he had gone to the tailor. He had wanted to be fitted for a suit a la Connery, and the tailor informed him, well, you know, it'll take whatever it was, three months or four months or something to get it. And you know, said, so, well, I don't have that kind of time. You know, Well, we just happened to have the suit here that Connery did not pick up, so we'll, we'll fit this one to you. That kind of thing would not happen today. You would just be a crazy person who was stalking a producer if, if that was your tactic to get into a movie.
0: And he storms his way into the production office gives the finger of like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay to the to the right. girl behind the desk, makes his way up to meet Cubby Broccoli, uh, who has his feet on the desk uh, mm-hmm. while talking on the phone, tells him to sit down. He won't sit down because his feet are on the desk uh, and stands there and something about this guy starts to win over Cubby Broccoli. And it's just, it is one of the most fascinating stories about somebody getting the role. And... I thought what was interesting, too, is that I can't imagine that the impression when Lazenby opened his mouth to speak at that point was one that would win you over because he's an Aussie, uh, and as he says in interviews, I mean, he's he's the most Aussie of Aussies. I mean, he sounds like, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, he has, and he can put on the thick accent now, even though he doesn't speak with it normally anymore in interviews, but very fascinating that all of this works out for this guy to be this character and it is too bad that his agent made the announcement his his agent Ronan O'Reilly makes the announcement that he will not be returning his bond and then the moment that this film doesn't do the numbers that the other films did, even though it's the highest grossing film in the UK that year. He they fire him, they let him go. Uh And it's just so fascinating and, it, and sad because even Lazenby himself says, man, I wish I had done another one. I, I wish I'm he's sure like, I could have does. done six or seven, you know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well I mean the, the whole thing is filled with a bit of turmoil. I mean here's the new guy who's young and brash and it is interesting that I I I think his youth brings something to the role that he is for all the the positive attributes you give him there's something else in there that he's sort of just having fun. And mm-hmm. a, and there's a little bit of uh there's a little bit of a wink and a nod to the audience part of that by design from the production but part of it, it he just seems like a young guy who's having fun making a movie for better or for worse.
0: Which brings a vitality to the role that hasn't been there in a couple of films.
1: Exactly, exactly, yeah. But, you know, you also read about Lazenby being a bit of a loose cannon on set. You hear about him saying to the press that he thinks that the Bond movies have run their course, so why would he do another one? Yeah, you know, any... I think any sane actor now would say, well, if I'm being offered the work, I take the work. And he had been signed to more than one picture, but it was to the producer's discretion to let him go if they wanted to let him go. And uh, and once you start mouthing off or your representatives start mouthing off to the press saying like, yep, he's done, he's gone, then it's very easy for the producers to exercise that clause and, and get rid of him for, for whatever reason they want. But yeah, you know, he, he's... He's a guy who maybe if he had had some experience under him before he came to the role, it would have played out very differently. He might have stuck around for three or four or five movies. Who knows?
0: Well, and, and it is, I, I want to say, I think it's a tragedy that he doesn't. Because I do think that he has something to this role. And in and, and the scene that really jumped out to me, I've seen this movie many, many times uh, because I am one of the fans who really enjoy it. The scene where he meets Tracy for the first time in the casino Mm -hmm. and they've sat down at the table. He's ordered the champagne and then she gives him basically the key to her room and leaves. There's a moment that lingers on him and he has the key in his hand and his eyes are kind of darting back and forth and you can tell that Bond is thinking. He's trying to figure out exactly what game is being played here and then how to proceed. I love that scene. It's mm. so small, but what it's doing is is letting you know that there are moments when no bond doesn't have it all figured out. So he has to weigh the options, and that was just a nice little moment to watch that character have to think through, okay, what what's my next move on the chessboard. And I just I, I that's something that for me, there are some of those scenes that he does and he does really well where it again it I don't know if vulnerability is really the right word for that but there's just a a deeper sense i think of the character of bond you know mm-hmm. um bond as we talked about when we covered craig doesn't seem uh ha- doesn't seem to have been a character really that you focused on before this right but this movie has a lot more about the character of Bond. I mean, he's on a very personal mission. He'll go off and do his own thing later on in the film. I mean, this, uh, he'll get married in this movie, you know. I mean, so this movie is really, I think, the first time we're almost introduced to Bond as a character, not just a caricature, which it's funny because even from Dr. No, he starts off more as the character, just the the kind of archetype. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And it's for all of those reasons that, you know, I I think we're hopefully making the effective case here that Connery probably could not have played this role in this movie, or at the very least, it would have been a very different feel in the end for this movie if Connery had stuck around to play it. I don't think we would have bought him. I don't think we would have bought him after the, the five missions that we had seen going on this as a new mission, falling in love with Tracy, getting married, etc. I don't know if we would have bought it. Or maybe it would have been in there, but it would have been played to a different degree. It might have been less important to the movie. You know, that moment comes back uh, at the opening of uh, Fear Eyes Only. You actually have a reference to Tracy. And then uh, later on, I forget which of the... Pierce Brosnan movies, we, we, one of the characters' references that Bond was married before. Oh, gosh. Oh, oh I wait a minute. I, I might be one. mistaken. That might have been in—sorry, uh, that might have been in uh, one of the Dalton movies. Oh, yeah. yes,
0: yes. I think it's in from License, uh, to, license kill. to Kill. Yeah. Yes, yeah. because uh, Felix was getting mm-hmm. married, too. So.
1: Yep. So we had these little elements that that linger in there, again, to, to tie all of these stories together, to at least say that they sort of exist loosely connected. Um, but I, I just don't know if I would have bought Connery doing at least this script as it was written. Um, I, I think he needed to breathe new life into it. Now, I do think that Lazenby has his faults. I, I don't think he is... Well, he's certainly not the most seasoned actor, but he would be the first one to tell you that, you know, because he wasn't. He had no experience coming into this. But there is something raw and and likable in a way that he brings to this that is necessary for this particular
0: movie. And I, I think on top of that, one, I think his age helps mm-hmm. for sure. I also think that his look helps. Mm-hmm. You know, he is thin. He seems in shape, you know, for the time period, uh, that was definitely not Sean at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh and so especially walking into a whole room full of women, Sean doesn't have the same magnetism anymore unfortunately. You know, yeah. this guy is bringing something. I think it's that rawness that you were talking about. You know, he's a he's definitely just a piece of raw meat and there the film is kind of beating him into uh submission throughout it and uh yeah. I think the physicality, uh, even just think the fight scenes, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, are much more raw and real feeling in this film, even from the very beginning. So uh, everything that they do in the movie definitely matches where they wanted to go, which Peter Hunt, his idea. I want this Bond movie to be different than any other Bond movie He said, you know, I want to put my stamp on this. And he's like, I want it to feel like the book. I I don't want there to be a lot of gadgets. I want it to be as real as possible. And I think the director, Peter Hunt, because of his work with editing Bond, I think he makes the... uh, At this point, I think he makes the best Bond yet Hmm. because of the cinematography work he does, the directing, I think, is fantastic. I think the editing is really fluid, and you can tell he's an editor. You know, mm-hmm. he kind of you can tell he frames his shots. He's probably not wasting a lot of time. So I, I, I was really noticing that. And there, you know, he's famous for his quick cutting, the scenes. You know, the the and the fast editing in the fight scenes, and yes, they do some of that here but I just I don't know all of that to me Peter Hunt I felt like did a fantastic job and I think it's because he's trying to mimic Terrence Young
1: yeah well you had to reinvent the language of the Bond film a little bit you know we we talked about the merits of Dr. No from Russia with Love Goldfinger and that those three to me sort of always belong together because they're in this Mm -hmm. this sort of direct line uh, of building upon each other But by the time you get to Thunderball, as we talked about, there's something a little bloated about that movie. There's something that just sort of doesn't hold together entirely. Then by the time you get to Only Live Twice, there are problems with that story. It's a great looking movie and it's exotic, but that movie feels like it's really about the spectacle.
0: Where style, no substance.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we we've got the weight of four previous movies, and now we've we've really got to wow the audience again. But with this movie, you could sort of go back to the drawing board, and just pare it down to the elements that work. And and I think part of the you know the directing and writing, and well, the directing and editing, I should say, are are really strong contributors to that. That you can cut the fat, and uh, and really focus in on the story.
0: Well, and it is also an interesting thing, too. You know, Peter Hunt has said in interviews that he felt like, you know, Terrence Young would have been a fantastic James Bond because he kind of just embodied James Bond. He said, man, if I could have directed a film and he had been Bond, it would have been fantastic. But that idea, I think he brings that sense to Lazenby as well. And, you know, this film... A lot like Dr. No, I think Peter Hunt is trying to mold Lazenby into becoming more like James Bond. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, I think by the end, he is doing a very good job. Unfortunately, we'll never know what would have been uh, if he had come back. But I, I, I feel like this movie almost does a, a a nice reset in the sense that I feel like if you follow Goldfinger with this film, it feels more continuous, mm. uh, in the sense of like style yeah, and the more realistic sense of the film. Uh, you know, Piz Gloria is a beautiful place, but the actual scheme and what's happening there, none of that's, uh, none of that's out of the ordinary, you know, biological warfare, all that kind of stuff. Uh, mind control through hypnotism, that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Not out of the realm of possibility. So none of it feels overly crazy or anything. It just feels beautifully cinematic because they put it in some incredible places which, you know, I mean, comes straight from the Bond book. This this location that they found, they were shocked because it was it's almost as if it came straight from the pages.
1: None of it is outer space or uh secret volcano lairs, you know? Uh, no, no <laughs> lasers
0: being shot at anyone right. or men with metal teeth.
1: Right, so. right. There is even a bit of uh, continuity that, that we don't address for, for as much as we try to make sure that we're keeping all of this in the same universe. Bond had already just faced off with Blofeld. Face right. to face at the end of You Only Live Twice. So it's a little bit harder to swallow now that Bond has no idea what Blofeld looks like, and Blofeld has no idea what Bond looks like, because we just spent the first half of the movie making sure that you know that this is the same Bond, even if he's not.
0: Although it it does what 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 kind of makes that fit, I guess a great time to talk about Telly Savalis. I uh, will just flow right into that. But Telly Savalis has a totally different face. That he does. Uh, that so, he does. you know, yeah it almost gives you that feeling that maybe he had had some plastic surgery done. And you can kind of, if you put that in the back of your mind, uh, it makes sense, even though in the book, it's Bond who has plastic surgery, <laughs> or they, I think they wanted him to have plastic surgery in the story, and then they just cut that part right. out. Yeah, that, that is true. Yeah, I, um, I, I can
1: retcon the part about Blofeld having plastic surgery. They had kicked around that idea about Bond having had plastic surgery, which I, I think would have been one step too many, <laughs> but yes, yes. Um, But at the very least, yeah, Blofeld would likely have uh, identified Bond, which he does. You know that that's fine, but it, it takes a little while to let on. And our correspondent is doing uh, an incredible uh, impression of Sir Hillary.
0: <laughs> so. Oh, oh! It, I mean, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, what do you think of him as Blofeld? We had Pleasants, now we have Savalis. Do you have a preference uh, at this point seeing these two Blofelds back to back?
1: You know, well, like I said in the last show, the the thing with the thing with Donald Pleasance is that that became the definition of the megalomaniac, bigger than life, bad guy forever and ever. Th- that became Doctor Evil. Mm-hmm. By the time you got to the end of Spectre. You know that Christoph Waltz is Blofeld. Going into the movie, I hadn't read any spoilers, but I kept thinking, he's got to be Blofeld. He's got to be Blofeld. He's got to be Blofeld. And by the end of that movie, I want to see Blofeld with a scar on his eye. And they delivered that because they knew they had to because there's something about that that is just so indelible, that is so the, the very essence of what the bigger-than-life Bond bad guy has to be. Now, that said... There's something so thoroughly believable about Telly Savalas, because maybe it's partly because I grew up watching him on TV in Kojak, so he's almost a little more real, um, and he's a, little more, he's a little more at ease in his interpretation of Blofeld than Donald Pleasence yes, yeah. is. Donald Pleasence is very wound up. For as much as we just cut to the, you know, the close-ups of him stroking the cat, and and you're sort of given that, <laughs> yeah. okay, well, well, he's the cool bad guy who's in control. He's also really wound up, uh, but not Telly Savalas. Telly Savalas is
0: just cool. Oh, man, he's cool, yeah. baby. Oh,
1: <laughs> right. So um, it, it's a great choice, again, in a movie that keeps, you know, one foot on the side of this is the same, nothing has changed, and another foot on the side of everything is different, get used to it. Telly Savalas is a good choice for that. He, he's bald, he's got the Nehru jacket. You can believe that he's Blofeld, but he's going to play Blofeld in a completely different way. I'm totally good with that. I'm totally good with reinventing characters along the way.
0: And I think, uh, to me, one of the things that uh, I really like about him is that fact that he feels kind of more believable as the director of Spectre, mm-hmm. you know, as, as this kind of person. And I, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, his plan is, again, it's it's not completely outrageous. He's found a way to create a small army of unsuspecting people mm-hmm to hold the world at ransom for money and title and basically to be pardoned for all the things that he's done. And the world is going to give in right. to right. him. You know, like he wins. Yeah. He legitimately wins until Bond comes to stop him, but not because the government sends Bond, not because His Majesty's Secret Service sends mm-hmm. Bond, uh, but because Bond takes it upon himself to make sure that this doesn't happen. And so I just, I think that is, uh, it just made for great storytelling. And and part of that was that his plan, kind (laughs) of genius, you know, I mean, uh, again, taking unsuspecting people, uh, you know, it's still the late 60s. So, you know, you know, the world is changing, but women are still going to be, especially beautiful women going to be let into places be able to do things that nobody else would let them do you know i mean Mm -hmm. he's this plan's smart so and it works till bond (laughs) 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 so no i love him Uh, he's actually i think of all the blowfelds we had he's actually my favorite but maybe it's just because he gets the most to do too in this movie he does you know Blofeld actually gets to be a character in the film instead of a caricature again yeah he's a bit more active and he he
1: actually seems to have something invested in messing with Bond as opposed to Donald Pleasence's Blofeld who just sort of sits there with a gun on him for uh, an inordinately long time and then doesn't shoot (laughs) and yeah (laughs) again it's very goofy but but it just sets the precedent for what the bad guy is going to do
0: and then what's really interesting is how, you know, obviously by the end of the movie, he makes things so utterly personal between him and Bond. And I think that's the strength of a, of a strong villain. It's unfortunate that moving forward into Diamonds or Forever, that that doesn't really continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had set up this really great place where you want to see almost Bond go off on a vendetta of revenge because of his wife yeah, Uh, and and that just won't happen so one of the things I wanted to ask you about because this struck me watching just the movie again for the umpteenth millionth time so at the beginning of the story do you think that Bond has been following Tracy hmm the whole time because he's already researched Draco and he wants something like this to happen. He suspects it might if he rescues Tracy a few times. So that he's just playing a bit hmm. uh but he doesn't expect to fall in love with Tracy. That's the thing that surprises him. But I, I was struck by this idea, like that it doesn't see Bond this whole time has has been Mm incommunicado with mi6 and they haven't been able to find him that's the whole very beginning of the movie uh money penny hasn't been able to reach him m hasn't been able to get a hold of him for for quite a while obviously he's been searching for blofeld and my thought process was is that because bond has been doing all this research into somebody who might be able to help him find blofeld and he's come upon this idea that Draco might be able to do it. And the best way to get in is to help take care of Draco's wayward daughter. And so he already has that plan going in. Do you think that's plausible? I mean, that's wow. just something I read into the film for this. This it, I'd never thought of that you know, That
1: is a really interesting idea. It, it hadn't occurred to me because I, I don't think the movie in any way indicates that you should take it that way. But here's the thing, everything that happens absolutely could have happened for that reason. I think it plays equally valid either way. Uh, I'm just trying to sort of rerun the movie through my head thinking, okay, at what point did Bond know everything that he needed to know? Or at what point is Bond sort of orchestrating what's happening because he wants information, because he wants to go through Draco? It's no secret that he's a mobster and it's no secret that he's got connections to a bigger part of the underworld that bond wants, uh, for, for whatever reasons. So yeah, you know, you open with this great mystery that seems sort of disconnected other than that it, it it's a woman in trouble. So who else do we expect in the pre credit sequence to show up and save the woman in trouble? Well, it's gotta be James Bond. And then, lucky for us, she happens to be the woman that is the the through line of the story. But you raise a great question. What happened the hour before that? What happened the day before that? What happened the week before that? That, um, that would have led Bond to be where she is and put himself in a position, perhaps, of then being able to step in to rescue her, to ingratiate himself, if not to her at first, then at least to her father. I think this is a really cool thing to ponder, and I hadn't thought about it until you brought it up.
0: You know, I hadn't seen this movie in, in a little bit, probably in about a year. And so when the the movie began, where we're at MI6, and we're not seeing Bond first, we're actually seeing... M and Q have a conversation about new gadgets, which is funny because they don't really use any gadgets <laughs> right. in the movie. But then the fact that they can't get a hold of Bond and they haven't been able to, and then Bond just happens to show up where Tracy is, uh, screaming down the road, you know, in her Mercury Cougar. Mm-hmm. It it just kind of clicked to me. I, I wonder if Bond has placed himself here on purpose as, he, as if he's been shadowing her, looking for an opportunity to find a way to meet her and maybe you know she seems to have had this proclivity before because draco says later in the film that after her husband's you know killed himself and his maserati with his mistress that she has not been quite all right basically in the head at this point um and so I don't know. It just something that's like seems like that would have been common knowledge in the tabloids of the time, that kind of thing. So I just put all that together, and I was like, "Wow, that makes this story even yeah. better." <laughs> right?
1: I think it absolutely works, and it, it doesn't undo anything else in the movie. So I think it's a, a perfectly good interpretation of what's happening.
0: Well, interesting. So we've talked a bunch about Tracy. So it's probably just time to talk about her specifically. Uh, this. Bond woman of women. And she, wow. Interesting to think that wasn't their first choice because they actually thought about Bridget Bardot. Yes. And she was going to play opposite Sean Connery until obviously uh, Sean was out of the picture and then the deal fell through with her.
1: Right. Um, well, I, I, uh, I do have some thoughts about that. Um, I'll, I'll tell you right off the bat that I'm a huge fan of Brigitte Bardot. Um, I, I've seen a lot of her movies and I'm just a big fan of sort of French pop from the sixties anyway. So I've, I've got some of her CDs. I'm a big, big fan. No, no two ways about it. And when I read that, I thought, you know what, there's something that she is well suited at playing that would have actually worked really nicely for this character. And that's that, very often in her movies, she's playing sort of the wild child, whether you go back to Roger Vadim's uh, original in God Created Woman, or you go up to the, the later stuff that she was in, like Don Juan or Viva Maria. She's playing this just sort of, you know, untamed person. And there's a part of Tracy that has to have that because the first half of the movie, yes. she's out of control and Draco doesn't know what to do with her and Bond doesn't know what to do with her. And Bardot is absolutely perfect for that role. The thing that Diana Rigg brings to the role is that she is so enormously sophisticated. And she was a a TV star at the time already because of the Avengers. That it's harder for me to believe her sort of as the -the off-the-rails wild child than it is for me to believe that she's the woman that Bond falls in love with and, and can sort of be his equal. So part of me loves Diana Rigg in that role because, of course, who else could it be? But part of me thinks, well, the things that I didn't necessarily believe about Diana Rigg in the first half of the movie, I probably would have believed Brigitte Bardot. Only trouble is Brigitte Bardot would have eclipsed everybody else in the movie because she was this massive icon at the time, not not known for being a great actress, but she was a very known personality. And when you put somebody like that up against uh, George Lazenby, it would have become the Bardot picture, and it would have been marketed as the Bardot picture. That would have been really tough, and that probably would have sent the movie right off the rails anyway. I kind of like to think about what movie this could have been with her in it, but we might have also dodged a bullet (laughs) by, by her not ending up in this movie.
0: And it seems, uh, because it's Diana Rigg as well. You know, they, like you said, they choose a person and an actress who is very seasoned. She has been in a lot of things. She's been on television. She understands the pressures of filming. Uh, she is sophisticated, as you said. There was a lot made in the press that they did not like each other. Mm. But even, um, Les and has said in interviews, that's not true. Right. Uh, we had a wonderful time. He said that she was nothing but gracious. And she said, uh, you know, they actually had a meeting before he was officially hired. And she came back to Cubby broccoli and said, I think he'll be good. Mm-hmm. I think he'll be good. And she told him, I will do anything I can to help you. And I think she does. I think you can tell her influence on him throughout the film as characters obviously but also just as an actor. Yeah, and she kind of said
1: the same thing, you know, there was stuff made at the time in the press about them not getting along, but but she at the time and since then has said no that they got along perfectly well. And um, it, again it is an interesting pairing because she is so experienced and so sophisticated and so capable an actor and was so known at least to British TV audiences at the time for The Avengers, to then be paired up with somebody who's a total unknown, who is a bit raw and rough around the edges, it's kind of opposite casting in that respect.
0: Well, and it is fascinating too, because this is the pinnacle Bond women to be playing. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is... The Bond girl of Bond girls. She is the one who wins Bond's heart. You know, uh, and that I think um, alone, it it sets her apart from every other single Bond woman that will ever play the role ever because of that simple fact. She can say one thing that none of them other ladies can. I was married to James Bond. Yes, it was for 10 <laughs> minutes and then I died, but I still got him to commit and to leave the service for me. And I mm-hmm. think that's the thing that, to me, in this movie with Diana Rigg, with Lazingby, but just with the character story that you get between those two, as she comes back from the brink, which Bond helps her come back from, she becomes a partner and a friend and a lover to him, and they become equals. And it's so interesting to watch that happen on screen to that moment where, you know, she rescues him. She's the one. He's, she's the reason that he's alive, right. you right. know? Um, and uh, so I just... And also, I mean, she is the reason that the world doesn't have Blofeld as a count, because if she hadn't still been there, Bond might not have gone to stop Mm-hmm. So she becomes such a pivotal character and Diana Rigg is beyond <laughs> gorgeous. So I, that's, that's, that is the cherry on top of all right, of this. So, right. and I think too, one of the important things that I like about her, she can act, Yes, you yes. know, uh, which not all of us can say about all of the Bond <laughs> women. That's very true. Very true. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, so because that's such an important story point mm-hmm. with Tracy, what do you think of the romance? Does that something that does work for you in the film?
1: You know, overall, yes. If I were to find fault with this movie, and I'll be very honest, you know, before we we get to our final summation here, I think rewatching this movie for this show the things that I liked about this movie, I really liked again. You know, it it sort of enhanced my enjoyment of it again, watching it and studying it for this show. That's what I like about doing this show, is that, you know, I, I, I watch a movie and then I watch it again with the subtitles on and I'm really actively viewing what's happening. And the things that I love about this movie, I really love. The shortcomings of this movie are kind of painful. Now, I think that, they did such a good job of building up this relationship between Bond and Tracy that you kind of take this detour when you go to Piz Gloria and then Bond goes right into this mode where he's he's just sharing the magic with every young lady who's up there being hypnotized for him, <laughs> right? Right? Um, and then sort of turn of a dime, he he escapes, Tracy helps him, um, thank goodness she was there with that Mercury Cougar again to save him from the bear with the camera <laughs>
0: oh, that bear, bear with the camera, the camera. terrifying. is freaky terrifying.
1: I, I feel like the, there's a point in the movie where the movie just sort of stops reminds the audience oh remember this is still a James Bond movie because now Bond is going to meet all these you know hot hypnotized women up here at his Gloria then we'll get back to the rest of the story after we have our fun there so there's something about that that kind of undermines what's happening with the Bond and Tracy relationship. And that's unfortunate because I, I'm not really sure how else you could do that. You've got to get Bond to Pis Gloria. You have to introduce these other characters. But there's something very strange about the way it plays out that, that just feels like we derailed it for a moment and then we come back.
0: You know, I want to challenge you just a little Mm -hmm. bit because I feel almost as if that is the reason that Bond and Tracy, when they're having the conversation in the Mm -hmm. barn, and he says, you know, this job takes all of a man. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's why he's saying what he's saying to her. Like, this is, I I can't do this job anymore and be in love with you. Mm -hmm. So I have to choose. And I feel like almost that, and and it's not probably played to the extent that it should be but i think maybe the intention is at least there in the conversation of him saying i'll choose you every time yeah. i love you and and therefore i will give up this life to have a life with you and i thought i to me that kind of made it Almost more impactful because he just had the ultimate James Bond experience, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, a different woman. At, oh. what, what, what hour yeah, was right. it? Um. Right. So, uh, but at the same time, he would rather choose the monogamous life with Tracy, and I thought that means more after what he just has been mm-hmm. through. Yeah, maybe so, and maybe so. so.
1: I, I, and maybe it's just simply the, the way the story is told. We just sort of lose Tracy at a certain point in the yes, movie. yeah. So it's very jarring. And then she's back, and thank goodness she's back because she, she has to be there. She's got to rescue him. But I, for me, the, there's something about that, not that the individual scenes don't work and not that the individual intentions don't work, but taken as a whole there's something about the way the movie sort of changes course and then comes back that feels a little a little jarring you know um but all that said i think they make a really good case throughout the movie of why these two belong together and and as rocky as it is at first there seems to be a a, a genuine affection between the two you know we we've already seen bond in previous movies just sort of Go through women who are there because they serve the purpose of the mission. And, you know, that, that clearly he develops that reputation as the love him and leave him James Bond, but he does that because, as you say, he, that's part of the job, and that job is taking all of him literally. So it's a good change of pace to have her there. It's a, a deft piece of script work. To make sure that the audience buys that they are a couple, and that that this could actually be the one for bond
0: and I think I think the choice of her and kind of her wild child mm-hmm. helps with his wild child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an understanding of the kind of person that is on the other side because those two people have experienced that part of life. It's almost the same, and it's exactly the same thing that they do with Madeline Swan and Spectre, yes. with Bond. Yeah. Somebody who understands the life of an assassin and uh, what it takes to be that kind of person and try not to be that kind of person and all of that. They they do the same thing uh, that they did with Tracy and they're mirroring that very much so. I, I think that's, that's a really interesting thing. I also think... It, Aside from Tracy, I love her father, hmm. Draco. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. I think he is such a fun character in the film. Um I I love that he has a a positively 1960s view of what his daughter oh, needs. Right. So yeah. uh you know that is that is quite one it's very European. Yep. Uh it's very Italian and and you know middle European. It's it's definitely that old world so, uh, you know, we we wouldn't consider that to be proper today, right, right? But he does have care for his daughter, you know. He just doesn't know what to sure. do with her. Um, and but I, what I love is that he becomes pivotal in saving the world when the world gives up. It's a criminal and a man with a license to kill who saved the world. Right. I love that. I just it's so much fun in this story. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I I can't disagree with you. I mean, he's. He's perfectly cast, and again, there's nothing wasted about him being there. You know that all of that has payoff in the end. So, and that that goes back to simply the quality of the script. That I felt like there were movies leading up to this, particularly Thunderball, where we're sort of meandering off the task. <laughs> you know, getting away from the point of the script, which is simply to tell the story. And and here we're actually making all of these little things pay off and and he would be one of them.
0: Well, and that is one interesting thing that is um, just very different from any of the other Bond movies. Really, this is the one where almost everything that happens in the book happens in the film Mm -hmm. felicitously. This is also probably the best James Bond book So you would actually want that to happen. Uh, You can read other of the books. If you've ever read Live and Let Die, I'm so sorry that you have. Uh, (laughs) But it's an awful book. And be thankful that it doesn't completely follow that story. So, yeah, they they really, I think Peter Hunt makes the right decision as the director to say, no, we're just going to do what's on the page. But I think that's because they all realize, honestly, that what's on the page is worth putting on screen. Uh, And this is actually one of the few Bond movies where, like, you know, when they were filming Lord of the Rings or something like that, and you'd hear all the actors saying they had annotated copies, uh, you know, with all their notes of of Tolkien on set. The same thing happened here. You know, uh, Lazenby had the book with him a bunch, rereading passages and things, and, and everybody was doing that. You know, you don't get that on all the other Bond movies. No, but but here's the thing. You know,
1: you you don't want to fall into the trap of of saying that this is a good movie because it follows the book or it is a good book because it is so close to the movie. You know, they I I think we're very lucky that they both work equally well in the medium that they exist. So it works very well as a book. And it works very well as a movie. There are many instances where a book as it's written is simply unfilmable, but you give it to the right director and right screenwriter, and you turn it into something that is different, but is good uh, on its own. It's good because of its new life that it has on screen. This happens to be one of those very rare instances when, the same story works equally well in both places. You know, it's a real rarity. It should be celebrated for that.
0: Well, and, and exactly. And, and I, that's exactly what I was trying to say is that, you know, you wouldn't have wanted the other Bond <laughs> films to probably be just like the books. This just happens to be uh, almost lightning in a bottle. And, and maybe, heck, you know, maybe... Fleming seeing the movies you know he did some things to kind of knock them yeah. with the gadgets but also it does feel like he becomes a better story writer because he maybe cut out some of the fat and the weird stuff and just wrote a really nice cohesive storyline mm-hmm. that was in the vein of James Bond movies yeah. So, yeah. yeah
1: otherwise had he not changed his ways we would have had 15 minutes of James Bond making scrambled eggs That would have been a movie. There you go, which,
0: I mean, riveting stuff. (laughs) Uh, So, Well, this movie has a couple of interesting things before we get to ratings. Um, It has incredible locations. It has no theme song at the beginning. And it has what has been named maybe John Barry's best score for Bond.
1: It, it is a great soundtrack, and um, I'm very proud to say that when I was, I think I was 16, maybe 17, and I was with my. Oh, it's like the, yeah, easily 10 years ago. Um, I, I was with my parents, and uh, we were on a trip to Europe, and I had the opportunity to go skiing, and I made absolutely sure that I had my, you know, yellow waterproof Walkman with a tape with about five copies of the ski chase music from on her majesty's secret service. So it was my thing to go skiing in Austria while listening to this soundtrack. Um, and, and I did it and I'm (laughs) very proud of it and I would do it again. Um, it is a fantastic soundtrack. Now, very importantly, um, I skip, uh, do you know how Christmas trees are grown? Um, do you know how Christmas trees are grown? <laughs> you had to.
0: You had why to. Why would you why would you skip uh, that, John? It's that, just uh, brilliant. I it makes this the best <laughs> Bond Christmas movie ever.
1: <laughs> That's so true. Um I, no, I do have to hand it to them though for having Louis Armstrong uh with We Have All the Time in the World. It's a yes. very romantic song. Yes. And, and it's cool to have if you're going to have a, a title track that does not have lyrics and you just play out over these gorgeous images and, and again, the montage of the previous missions, that then you do have something that is sort of more of a pop song to anchor the movie. I thought that was a really smart choice, and it was the last thing that uh, Louis Armstrong recorded.
0: I'm right there with you because I think that Louis Armstrong's song, you know, this film, for so much of it, is a romance movie between Bond and Tracy. Mm -hmm. And so that song... And then the refrains of that song in just orchestral yeah. music score great are yes, are perfect for the romance that is budding between them, and so I'm right there with you and then the the actual theme that Barry comes up with that that kind of bombastic bomb bomb. Mm-hmm. Bum, 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 bum. And it's just, yeah. like you said, it's perfect for the skiing so scenes. It, But it's it's brilliant because Barry has created something that allows him to do action without just having to revert to the James Bond theme, which he only uses very sparingly right. here. Uh, and it's on the attack there. Uh, so uh, on P- his Gloria. So I think... Barry just, uh, I almost feel like he found his groove mm-hmm. and almost maybe he found new inspiration. It's a new bond. Uh, it's gorgeous locations, m- majestic scenery. And I i am right there with you. I have this soundtrack. I play it frequently while I'm working just because it's a fun soundtrack. It has great action, but it has beautiful melodic melodies. Uh, I do do most of the time skip where christmas trees are grown because well um you know and i i like i like the use of location obviously it's beautiful being in the alps um but uh it's never the only time i feel like the location really becomes a thing is the first time where they come into pis gloria mm-hmm. and they do the whole scenery thing but then everything else it just feels so natural um and i do have to to give a huge shout out to the filming of this movie cameraman johnny jordan who helped film the helicopter battle and you only moved twice lost his leg doing that comes back creates a brand new film system hanging from parachute harness below a helicopter so he can shoot those 360-degree shots of the skiing. And they revolutionized aerial filming by doing that. And that's where you get those incredible shots and creating a real avalanche with the Swiss Army to film for this film as well. So, I mean, that's incredible. And they they even said the majestic avalanche that you get, those incredible scenes, they're like, yep, that's just all real. Yeah. For that. Pretty
1: amazing. Yeah.
0: And one more thing that I I actually have to give them credit for too. This movie, the insert shots of the actor in action Mm -hmm. sequences isn't quite as jarring. True. I mean, you can still tell. Yeah. But it's getting better. Yeah. So that's definitely something you could tell that they had worked on. The car chase sequence with the Cougar. Yes. On the ice. That's all just real. And... Lazenby and Diana Rigg are in the car 99% yes, of the time. I heard, that. I
1: heard that. she did a lot of her own stunt driving. Yeah. Which is pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh man. Well, I guess that that just leads us down to to one last thing. I I love that we're covering this film here at the holiday season for 2016 because it is it is a movie that in Bond Canon, now you could consider the holiday Bond movie because the last half of the movie takes place over the Christmas season. So uh and there is a wonderful Christmas song that nobody wants to listen to in it too. So <laughs> how, how lucky <laughs> for everyone. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, in the end, John, yes. what would you rate on her majesty's? secret service
1: well you know so like i said the the things that i already liked about this movie and rewatching it for our show today i i fell in love with those things all over again I, I realized again why this is a bond film held in such high regard the things that irked me the things that jarred me really stuck you know they they were a little harder to get over this time And I don't know why that is. I feel like maybe the first time I saw this movie, you know, I grew up watching the Roger Moore movies. Then I watched the Sean Connery movies. Then I saw this. And it was never my favorite. But I developed an appreciation for it over the years. And like I said, watching it this time around really drove home what works about this movie. But the faults really, really stuck.
0: What would you say, uh, and I, I, I want to get from your perspective, what's mm-hmm. the, what would you say are the three biggest faults for you that kind of kind of stick in your craw? Hmm, hmm. Um,
1: I, I do think that you know, Lazenby needed another couple of years of experience before doing this movie. It, here's the thing. He's so good at what he's good at, but he's also really unpolished as an actor. Now, that's a good thing in many places. So we, we want a Bond here who's a little rough around the edges, but that's the character, not the actor, you know? So I, I think that he needed, um, you know, I, I love his guts going after the role, but I think he either needed to be thrown into some acting classes or more so than he was given before doing this movie, or maybe he needed to go make another movie before he made this. I don't know what that other movie would be, but I think he needed to have something under his belt before taking on this one. But I would hope that even if he did that, it wouldn't take away from the things that are fun about his performance, because he is having fun, and it lets the audience have fun in a way that we haven't with Connery in a couple of movies. So it's a real double-edged sword there, and I don't know quite what the perfect balance is for that. The other thing that I would say, and, and I'm only going to give you two, because I, I I would have to sort of, you know, rack my brain here and go back through the the notes that I took, you know, weeks ago. But the other thing I think is just that there is sort of that weird late 60s kind of take on on women. You know, thank God we have Tracy in here being awesome and being tough. She's also damaged. But... You know she's she's damaged in a way that gives her some strength. It's a little weird that you have to hear a conversation about her father saying, like, "Well, all she needs is a man to make her right. you know okay, all right that's that's a little gross. you're a little weird, but we'll we'll go with it for the purposes of the movie here. And like I said, that detour that the movie takes, we need that scene at Piz Gloria, but it just feels weird that you have this derailment of the movie, have a whole other movie happening at Piz Gloria, then you come back to the story that we had already started with Tracy. So there's something very disjointed about that that feels a little strange. It just feels like, okay, well, we've got to fit in some more women here because our audience expects that out of Bond. You know, almost like they're pulling their punches a little bit in making this movie. Those may be minor quibbles. But as I was watching the movie again, it just sort of the things like that stuck out to me that made me feel like, oh, I I can't get behind everything in this movie, but I can get behind most of what's in this movie. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, you know, if it was out of if it was a rating out of 100, I'd give it a 90 or a 95. But we do ratings out of five. (laughs) So I'm going to give it a I'm going to give it four and a half Aston Martin DBS's, 1969 model.
0: Oh, and that's a beautiful car, isn't it? It's a beautiful it? car. It's oh, a beautiful I, car. I, nobody talks about the DBS, but that thing needs some respect because yeah. it, it just, it still looks good. Yeah. It yeah. still looks good.
1: It's a cool car. And, and, you know, catch me on another day, I'm going to give it four out of five. You catch me right now, I'm going to give it four and a half out of five because I like that this breaks the mold that we had established with five uh, five other movies. So I respect the idea of how they wanted to change things up. I respect the idea of wanting to tell a more intimate Bond story. And I love what you say about how we don't get back to the point of the James Bond movies being about James Bond until we introduce Daniel Craig. We've got a long way to go until we get there.
0: It is a long time. I, I, I you know? guess... I guess we could revise that and say that you do see that a little bit in GoldenEye. The film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. does have a bit about the character, yeah. But um, you don't—I don't think you get it in earnest until Craig. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, I—I I love all that you have to say. I think that, you know there's really absolutely nothing I can argue about with you because I think all the points that you made are, are so valid. And it's not a perfect movie. And, and few movies are, I I do love that. Talking about this one, there was really only one place where we were kind of frustrated with, and 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 for good reason uh, about the treatment of women. Um, you know, uh, otherwise, I think it, this this movie is a little bit better with that than some of the others that we have seen. Um, At least we're not turning Bond Japanese, uh, (laughs) you know. Uh, So I think the real strength of this movie, and I will agree with Steven Soderbergh, I think that this movie has a lot to study for James Bond fans that will give it a chance because it is about the character. And the storyline for him is very important. Uh, We didn't mention before, but this is the story that helps explain why James Bond will never be with anybody again romantically beyond flings. It, It makes so much sense when you see this movie that he would never want to fall in love again after what he caused because his lifestyle... Led to the person he loved being killed. So I I just I really think that's impactful for the character. I think it adds a lot to the character. Unfortunately, we won't really get any of that depth for a long while. May well and and like you said, you reference it a little bit in For Your Eyes Only, but you know, of course, then he's sleeping with a twenty-year-old and he's (laughs) fifty-nine or whatever. So all in all, for me, this is. Five out of five malt whiskeys with branch waters uh it's it's just it's a spectacular bond movie that has heart for the first time and uh it has my favorite bond woman uh, it has my favorite bond score not my favorite bond song that's different bond but uh and I actually have a huge amount of respect for George lazenby and and very disappointed that he did not continue because I think he would have only gotten better with each subsequent visit to the tuxedo you know the history is history and we have diamonds of forever next well so. hey
1: catch uh, george again as jb in the return of the man from uncle the 15 years later affair Ooh. in 1983
0: <laughs> i might have to do that driving Let's an aston martin db5 in that one yeah. There you go. Uh-huh. Well, I, John, it's so much fun that we get to talk about this stuff here on the 602 Club, and it's, it's been a fantastic year. We have um, about four or so more episodes here for the rest of the year. We're going to be wrapping up for everybody with Rogue One. It's going to be a huge season. Uh, it's just been a blast. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening, supporting the show over the year. Two years and more strong now, so thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, the men who make sure that that comes to us each and every week, especially through Patreon, the 602 Club here, Kentrip, Davis Grayson, Norman Lau, all associate producers for this show specifically. Thank you so much. Now, we're a listener-supported network, and there's no way that we can continue on into 2017 without the support of listeners just like them and you. So please go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become part of the team and support the network. Uh, every little bit helps. Uh, and so maybe that can be um, a New Year's resolution for you. So thank you so much, so everyone. Uh, John, It's it's been fantastic to reach the uh, end of our first year of looking back at Bond. Uh, and I can't wait to jump in next year and, and continue on. It, it's I've never watched continuously through the series like this uh, in the way that we're doing and uh, it'll be interesting I can't we wait, we're going to
1: kick off 2017 yeah. with uh, with a trip to the 70s a trip
0: through ah, the 70s the psychedelic yeah. 70s yes, <laughs> yes uh, if you thought the 60s were psychedelic just wait till you get to the 70s um, well John, uh, where can everybody find you there online and uh, of course, just make sure that you remind everybody about uh, Mission Log as well
1: Yeah, uh, I am most frequently found at Mission Log Podcast. That's missionlogpodcast.com and on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Skype, Mission Log Pod. So um, if you like Star Trek, and I assume if you're listening to a place called Trek FM, then you probably have a passing familiarity with Star Trek. So give us a listen. Um, You can also find our show on trek.fm. And you can find me personally on Twitter at DVDGeeks. A little more active over at uh, Mission Log, but you can find me either way. So um, stop on by, say hello.
0: Well, of course, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at rushing 2 You can also find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones and, of course, on Literary Treks with Bruce and Dan talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Don't forget that we have Star Wars 602 Club Collection. It's all the Star Wars episodes in one place. You can find that online. There on iTunes along with, of course, the 602 Club, the main feed. And if you love Star Wars like I do, you can also find me talking with John Mills every week on Aggressive Negotiations. We just talk all things Star Wars. Pick some fun topic each week. It's a blast. I hope you'll join us there. And that's also on iTunes and then, of course, on TheNerdParty.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back down here.